This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 620. I really focused on helping our company very much weather this storm that we're in. And, and again, it's not just the storm of, of COVID, but it's the racial injustice, trying to listen to learn and think about how we do things differently going forward. And in one respect, it's almost a blank slate, right? Because nobody has ever worked in our function in, in an environment like we have now. So there really is no rule book. And so we're creating that as we go and we want to make it impactful and bottom line, we have to, of course, abide by our financial goals and commitments, but we can do that in a way that hopefully brings the company to to the next level and, and keeps us on the trajectory that we want to be on. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to CFO Lori Krebs of Red Hat. It was October 2019, and Red Hat Software was preparing to submit its latest quarterly results to its new parent, IBM Corp, when Lori Krebs was asked to become CFO. Lori tells us it wasn't exactly what she had in mind. In fact, she tells us during the course of her finance career, she never really aspired to become a CFO. Who wanted all of that responsibility? Lori tells us she has in the past challenged herself with such questions. But as you will likely determine, Lori brought something more, something that was evident maybe to the people she worked with and became evident to Red Hat's new parent. And uh, it's something audio, uh, I would argue, reveals better than other forms of media. And that is her her people-oriented qualities. Uh, suddenly, we're able to connect the dots. And it became clear that as a senior vice president in finance, she already had a finance resume. But she also had uh, the people skills that would be required to be the next CFO of Red Hat. See if you agree. We begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. speaking with Lori Krebs, CFO of Red Hat. Lori, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Lori, uh, we always begin by asking our guests to look back and try to identify those experiences they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role. What, what, what comes to mind for you? Thanks, Jack. Well, I started my career at KPMG in Syracuse, New York, part of a very small office focused on a lot of uh, financial institutions at the time, and this will date me, but uh, a lot of savings and loan institutions, which then, of course, got gobbled up, (laughs) at which time I switched over to focusing on manufacturing 
clients and then ultimately technology. But I first started my career, you know, interning in the tax department. And then I uh, officially started my career in auditing. But to be honest with you, uh, I, I didn't really want or I didn't really, really know that I wanted to be an accountant or follow a finance route. And that's largely because I'm a very people oriented person. And I struggled with, am I going to like sitting behind a desk all day, punching numbers into a 10 key? You know, and, and quickly I saw, no, this is about being part of a team, about helping to coach and mentor others, about delivering, adding value to your customers. So very quickly, I navigated through the ranks of KPMG in this fashion. And really, I ended up being at KPMG altogether for 14 years. 12 of that was in Syracuse, New York. And I did transfer down to Raleigh, North Carolina for the last two years uh, of my career with KPMG. But it was at KPMG, uh, you know, one of the interesting kind of moments in my career that I think I always look back on was at the time when I was promoted to manager and within KPMG, when you got promoted to manager now, again, that's many moons ago, but they had something called charm school. I don't know if they still have it now, but you literally went to this exciting conference center in Montvale, New Jersey, and you did a lot of you know, just learning about how to engage with clients, how to build clients and how to behave. And so one of the tasks that you did there was to take a Myers-Briggs test of personality kind of thing and how you can interact with others. And the results of that was shared with the head of HR for the entire firm globally would come to this big manager session. And he actually called me out on the fact that I, I, my results came back that I was a very empathetic leader. And he actually told me in that session in front of everybody as he was giving various feedback to people that I might consider another career outside of KPMG, outside of the business world, because he it was his opinion that I needed to seek other work, maybe social work, maybe something else, because he didn't think I was going to succeed in the business world. So I, I th I've thought about that so many times. I relay that conversation to myself. I find it quite motivating at times, you know, even most recently on the day back in October of this past year, when I was asked by Red Hat's CEO to take, take on the CFO position, you know, I thought, well, I should reach out to Mr. KPMG Human Resources, who of course is no longer there. And I just share with them that I've done pretty well in the business world. Wow, that is quite an anecdote. I, I, because you were too empathetic, because perhaps you were sensitive to some of the colleagues you worked with and their challenges. This was evidence as to why you were not cut out to be a business leader. Wow. D different place, different time. So let me just ask, where were you then when you started down that uh, leadership path? I would say I started that in my journey at KPMG. You know, I was very focused on the office and very focused on creating and managing a team. I learned a lot of my leadership um, skills, if you will, from people that I really like to work for. You know, you learn a lot both ways. You learn what, how you feel when somebody treats you well, and then you certainly learn how you feel when somebody treats you not the way you want to be treated, you know, kind of like that Maya Angelou uh, saying, you'll never you know, people will forget what you said and people will forget what you did, but people will never forget the way you made them feel. And that's kind of how I've emulated over time. And so I had big teams at KPMG and that was probably, I, I loved focusing on them and I loved focusing on my customers. I, I considered my customers and my clients to be an extension of, of people that I could interact and network and really help to serve. And that was the part of the business that I liked. And, and perhaps maybe the HR leader at KPMG wasn't too far off. You know, I never had that burning desire to be a partner, for example. I really enjoyed, um, you know, managing, coaching people, working with my customers. That didn't mean, you know, it doesn't translate into I didn't want to be successful because I always did want to be successful, but it just worked for me. So my first uh, foray into the private industry from KPMG literally came because my admin one day walked in with a job ad in the paper. Again, this was a long time ago before LinkedIn and the internet and said, isn't this what you do? And, and it was really a job posting for a company that was moving its headquarters to Raleigh, North Carolina. And they were establishing 
reestablishing a tax department because by then at KPMG, I had gone over to focus my career mostly on tax. And I said, yes, this is this is exactly what I do. Um, I create kind of tax groups and organizations, and that's what I really am passionate about. And she said, you should consider this because your work too, uh, you know, your hours are crazy here. You have two little daughters. And, you know, and I thought about it for a minute. I'm like, you know what? She's right. So I applied. And so I soon became the tax director at Nortel Networks. And at the time, this was post-bubble burst for Nortel Networks, well before bankruptcy. It was still an $11 billion company. They were going to, you know, save a lot of money by consolidating their offices. And so they had a team of um, tax team back in Nashville, Tennessee, that they were moving to Raleigh and they were not moving anybody and we were creating a new team. So I got to hire and create a team of 25 people here in the U.S. And and that that was a crazy time because even though the bubble had burst and we thought the company was on the rebound, it really did continue to suffer financially. But one of the things I remember uh, in the very first couple of weeks there, I had a transition with the team in Nashville. And at the time, Nortel was under an incredible IRS exam. I mean, we must have had 50 IRS examiners on the account. They were all convinced there was all things wrong with our expenses and our records and our books. But I overlapped for two weeks with the existing head of tax for Nortel. And so she invited me to this touch base meeting with the IRS in Nashville, Tennessee. And when I walked into that room, I mean, there was shouting back and forth. The IRS was accusing this tax team of not providing anything they asked for. The tax team literally said to the IRS, do you have a B in your bonnet? What is your problem? And I thought, oh, my God, what in the world have I walked into here? <laughs> and and so what I was fortunate, because it was crazy time. And then soon after that, Nortel went through four restatements in five years because there was some fraud at the management executive level. I mean, it was just insane. <laughs> and I think back and the way that I survived that was because I was able to build a team of people that I trusted that had the right skills. And that has been my mantra my whole career is I surround myself with really good, really technical people. I hold them accountable. I empower them and I let them do what they do best. And and I, you know, I'm there to break down barriers, but I lean on them. And that's the only way I survived that crazy chaotic time. And, you know, it as crazy as it is, that's the part that I enjoyed is being a leader of that team, kind of being serving in a, a valuable arm for the company. We ended up um, we had a multi-billion dollar tax assessment at the time, and I found out that it was really, you know, landed on us because of the bad relationship between us and the IRS. So I, I would say the other maybe moment in my career that I've realized that somewhat helps to be successful is truly being transparent and showing a willingness to work together as a team. And I don't mean that just as my team internally, but also as a team try, trying to work with the IRS or the tax authority to get to the right answer. Um, I don't believe in the prospect of holding all my cards close and only flipping over the one that they're asking for. I find, you know, it's the old age, uh, you get more bees with honey, right? If you just be transparent and are honest with people, um, you, you get a lot more in return for that. Certainly, uh, you made an investment of time at, at Nortel as well. You were there five years. And I, I think it, when you leave, you're really a, sort of a tax heavyweight. And I'm sure you could have found your way into many uh, companies as their tax leader or head of the tax department. But meanwhile, we hear there's some risk to that specialization at times. Um, so I'm curious, eventually uh, you get on a broader track. And I'm wondering if, if you might share a little bit about sure. that. And how did I do in terms of my characterization? Am I oversimplifying or yeah. what would you say? No, I mean, you did it quite well, right? I mean, you can definitely be boxed in and and that is a concern. Um, and, and I counsel people even to this day, um, I think I'm a good example of how you can use that, the broader skills that you gain along the way. You know, I, I credit a lot to my public accounting background, um, but 
you know, to be a good tax person, you really have to understand the books and records. And I think that is what has springboarded my career over every time I, it's kind of ironic, every time I try to focus on tax, because that's somewhat my comfort zone, I get pulled into this broader finance accounting um, world. So yeah, you you summed it up very nicely. I I do have a very strong uh, background there, but I find it's a lot of the skill set is transferable. And, And I think the other key and this goes to no matter what function you are in finance, whether it's treasury or um, internal audit or business finance, the, the key is all in how you can relate to the other functions and work collaboratively to you know help the company. And by that, I mean, you know, I, like I preach all the time to my teams when I was in tax, don't engage in any conversation with the business that quotes an IRS code section. You know, we've, we've got to talk just business terms. We've got to understand the business. We can't bring a technical discussion to the table. So I think that's, that's what's helped me as well, because I know what, again, that feels like when somebody starts preaching to me on crazy treasury terms and hedging and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, you're going to lose me, right? Let's focus on what is the problem we're trying to solve and how do we do that together? So and, and that's exactly like you said, I mean, my my next foray um, at the end of Nortel there, I got a call about an opportunity at Cree, which is an LED lighting company, which was an exciting growing company, homegrown here in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, from technology developed at NC State. And, uh, you know, we make LED lighting. And again, this company has been in existence now for 27 years, and we're all starting to see the benefits of LED lighting here, right? There's some really good lighting, there's some really not good lighting, and and you know the difference between the companies that really know how to make it, because when you have good LED lighting, you shouldn't know the difference between an incandescent light and, a, and, a, and an LED light. So, Anyway, I joined there. I got the opportunity to in-house, again, a tax department. That's what I was hired for. But as I grew with the company, when I got there, it was a $200 million company. It grew right before I left. It was $1.5 billion. And over that almost 10-year span, you know, the company grew a lot. We had acquisitions. I worked with um, one or under one or two different CFOs. But the most recent CFO there, uh, towards the end of my stint at, at Cree, had recognized that we had so many, we had just acquired a big company. His focus was mostly on the operations and trying to get that different brand and direction that we were going. So it didn't allow him a lot of time to foster the leadership side of the CFO organization, the people management side. And and so a, a lot of, we were losing a lot of headcount in finance and, you know, people just didn't feel that they had a place. And, and you know, the company had, struggled a little bit financially around that time too. So, so things were getting a little um, tough. And so I was approached and he said, Hey, I really want to create a VP finance position. Um, I need somebody, my right hand person to kind of handle the day to day, lead this team while I focus on some of the bigger things. And I would love for you to do it. And so I thought, wow, okay. So anyway, I, I did. And, you know, he said to me, I, of all my leaders, I, you know, I think you span well across all the functions and you're obviously proven that you're collaborative in nature. And and so that's how I ended up picking up SEC reporting and FP&A and then still doing tax and stuff. So yeah, springboarded there. And so you leave uh, in a VP of finance level when the Red Hat opportunity comes. Now, Many listeners likely have heard of Red Hat and might know something about the company. And uh, we're interested, of course, in how your world intersects with it. But just to provide something of an overview up front here, tell us about Red Hat. What sets it apart? What are its offerings? And maybe provide a few details about its its latest chapter, at least uh, latest chapter in my mind, which unfolded maybe a year or so ago. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Red Hat is an enterprise software company, uh, we're, but the differential for us is that we're built on an open source platform. So everything in our world is open. Our software code is open, our culture is open. And both of these factors contribute significantly to what sets us apart from our competitors, most of whom offer software via proprietary licenses and have traditional mainstream work environments. 
So at, at Red Hat, our code is free. We don't charge for our software. Anyone's free to download it, to modify it, to rec, uh, replicate it. We, we do obviously make money. We're, we're uh, a strong company. Uh, we, charge, we do that via charging a subscription fee for the support and the certification that our software is enterprise ready and able to work across all different platforms. We are leading the effort to help organizations migrate to the hybrid cloud so that they can balance applications across a multitude of different on-prem or public offerings, whether that be IBM's public cloud, Amazon's public cloud, Microsoft. And then I think, you know, for those people that don't know Red Hat, we were acquired by IBM uh, almost a year ago in July for $34 billion, so the largest software acquisition, I think, in, in history. So, um, yeah, it's been an, a challenging and exciting time, but we're very much of the belief that if you op make things open and transparent, right, which aligns a lot with my values, and I, I tell people a lot that I have finally found kind of a a really good home for me because it aligns my personal values with my passion for people. But if you have all these eyes looking at what is code, right, you're going to unearth all the bugs because people are going to look at it, they're going to point it out, and then it gets fixed. There's a whole uh, ecosystem out there of open source developers that pride themselves on being open. They want to share, they want to collaborate. And so what Red Hat has done really well is is um, establish a good rep reputation in that community. And we there are 10 million or so open source codes and, and we've gone in and, and put some bundled together and created a very stable enterprise platform. So I know you mentioned earlier that uh, it was only October of last year that you stepped into the CFO office. You had joined Red Hat uh, a number of years earlier. You were a senior vice president just prior to uh, uh, just prior to becoming a CFO. Can you tell us a little bit about your arrival? And then I want to ask you about uh, about your team and how maybe you you structured it a little differently, uh, how you looked at the world, uh, those types of questions. But what would you tell us? Yeah. So so consistent with my earlier stories and seems to be a theme. I, I ended up at Red Hat again through the power. I mean, I, I really strongly believe there's power and personal connection. And, and it was my audit partner at Cree that actually had recommended um, this opportunity at Red Hat. Red Hat was looking for a replacement to the VP of tax who was retiring after 15 years of being there. So, you know, again, I'm in this finance role at Cree and I thought, well, okay, um, this sounds exciting to me because Red Hat had always had a reputation in the market of being really, really um, proponents of their associate base as well as a great strong company. So I said, well, why not? Right. So anyway, I interviewed, I, ended up getting a VP of tax role and did the same thing I've always done. Um, they were looking to kind of um, enhance the tax department and I was given carte blanche to really develop it into um, a more stable workplace and, and focused on the needs of the company at that time, which had drastically changed since the last VP of tax came in. So I did that and um, again, built a really strong team, got a bunch of strong leaders. I emphasized how important it was that tax needs to be a business partner and not just the person crunching the numbers at the, at the end of the road. And I think I was really recognized for breaking down a lot of barriers and, and being more than just tax, right? And I as well got involved in a number of the leadership opportunities at Red Hat because Again, Red Hat really focuses very much on its associates. We're a meritocracy, so very anti-hierarchical, where everybody's voice matters, almost to the point where that can be dangerous too. Um, and uh, but I loved it, right? And I felt like I, I had, I, it was just a place where I could flourish, and I did. And and for example, um, one of the things when I first joined there. Uh, the CFO had an offsite with his leadership team, and we we were asked to each come with a profile of a you know rising star on our team. So we all came with that person, and each function talked about. So the treasury function had profiled their person, I profiled somebody in tax and finance, accounting, et cetera, et cetera. And we got done, and that was the end of the session. And I'm like, wow, this is such an increase, uh, an incredible 
gathering of um, talent. Like, what are we going to do about this? Like, shouldn't we do something with this? And everybody said, yeah. And I said, well, what if I'll, I'll volunteer to create kind of a network where, because what we were happening is we were also reviewing our employee survey results. And there was a lot of, um, some of the lower scores were in cross-functional collaboration. And so obviously we were thinking, well, that meant, well, how does finance um, liaise with legal and with sales and stuff? But you know, you started thinking, hey, I know there's a lot of people in my tax team that don't know anybody in treasury or anybody in business finance, let alone we're a global enterprise. And so how does somebody in my tax team sitting in the US get to know somebody in the business finance team in Singapore, right? So so anyway, what came out of that was this um, enterprise, what we now refer to as CFO Connect. So we took that that group that we started with and what we did was we created a project team. So we split them into two teams and we said, hey, look, at this is for development. And I just made up this whole program as we went. And I said, the purpose is to network with each other, to be able to have a counterpart to lean on when you have to pick up the phone and have a question in some of these things. But it's to start breaking down that those barriers. So and we also accomplished another thing, which is to work on projects that none of our individual functions could get to. So for example, at the time we were still a public company, our investor relations team were struggling and saying, hey, um, increasingly our customers, associates, investors are asking about our ESG scores, you know, our sustainability measures, environmental social governance. And we don't have a platform for that. We didn't have a dedicated office. We needed so that's what we did. We assigned this group of very highly uh, talented individuals to say, hey, help us understand what we can do in this space. You know, what, it, what benchmark for us, what other companies are doing. And and lo and behold, coming out of that, we had a whole white paper on how to put one together. You know, so it was so I think it was that kind of thought leadership that um, I think garnered some appreciation for the fact that I was more than maybe just a tax person, that I really cared about trying to make us a big team and a, and a well-functioning team. So let me ask, when the CFO opportunity uh, did come forward, and it, that was it after the acquisition then? Forgive me on the timing of the acquisition. Yes, uh, it was. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was uh, the acquisition. The deal closed in July of 2019, and I was asked to step into the CFO role in October of 2019. So just two months after and right before we had to uh, submit our first quarterly results to our new parent, our big investor, which was IBM. Um, so, yeah, it was an uh, interesting time. It's been an interesting ride if I think back about my CFO journey, uh, I often ask, would anybody else have said yes to this? You know, knowing knowing what I know now, taking over uh, at that time, right after an acquisition, you know, knowing there was a big pressure on us and how we're going to integrate with IBM. And then fast forward, um, I had a team to somewhat restructure. And, and that was more a measure of, you know, I, br I brought different skill sets to the table than the, the previous CFO who departed. And so I needed to complement those. And, and I did what I always do, right? I mean, I just surrounded myself with the right talent and strong skill set and, and created a team out of it. And it's, it's saved me again. Because I'll admit, when the CEO came and asked if I would consider the CFO role, it was nowhere on my radar ever in my career to be a CFO. In fact, I often wondered, you know, who would want all that responsibility, especially after Sarbanes-Oxley came in? knowing IBM had just acquired us for $34 billion and how much pressure it was going to have on us to deliver financially uh, the results that were needed. I knew there was a lot of reconfiguration needed because I was one of the CFO team members and I knew we were not a highly functioning team at the time for various reasons. And so that was a lot to take on. And I said to the CEO, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll help you out until you get a legit CEO. And he looked at me and he goes, no, 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 we want you to be it. You know, my leadership team has confidence in you. Your name came up unanimously as the person that could lead this team forward. But I really did it, Jack, because again, it goes back to my passion for people. I knew that our finance organization had the most incredible people. 
And because of some of the dysfunction that was happening prior to that, we were watching them walk out the door and it was killing me and I was trying to do what I could, but I could only do so much, you know? So I knew I could do that part of it. And I knew I had a pretty good track record of putting high, high performing teams together. And so I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Um, That was of course, before ever um, anybody knew of COVID crisis or now the racial injustice um, movement that's here too. So it's been an interesting ride. It's a, it's a very interesting chapter uh, that you've lived through and you have this point of comparison now with your um, predecessor CFO, who of course was involved in this acquisition, no doubt. And you were observing every step of the way. And I'm just curious when you think about how that CFO had to spend their time dealing with the different stakeholders versus how you will be spending your time. And clearly it's a different, it it would have to be a different approach, but I'm wondering, for instance, all of what he had to deal with as a public company, you won't have, but you will have other sets of uh, to-dos and and important connections that you have to spend more time with. How am I doing? Is there a point of comparison here? You you nailed it. No, Jack, you nailed it. And I mean, I'm glad you brought that point up, right? Because while I did accept the CFO role, I accepted it also knowing, hey, I don't have the big responsibility of getting on earnings calls and, and you know, all those things that the predecessor CFO at Red Hat was very, very good at. And we're really, that's what he enjoyed the most. Um, and, you know, he was a Prior to coming to Red Hat, he was a 20-year veteran of IBM, so he understood the landscape that we had gotten into. There was a lot of trust by IBM that he, you know, that he knew kind of what they were looking for. And and here I come in as a complete unknown, you know, other than with my counterparts in tax, um, which luckily had gone well, and um, with a completely different skill set. But also knowing um, that I didn't have those external investor type of responsibilities. However, I have one massive internal investor that um, you know we need to stay close to. And so, part of the restructuring that I did do, um, and I, and this was actually at IBM's suggestion. You know, uh, the arrangement with IBM because a lot of our customers, as I explained earlier, rely on this open source nature, and a lot of IBM's uh, business is proprietary. I mean, IBM itself was a partner for Red Hat. Um, IBM is a customer, but so is Microsoft, so is Amazon. So there's a lot of competing customers, partners in our world that it is critical that Red Hat's business maintain its independence. IBM understands that. They have been so protective and supportive of this. It's been a great arrangement so far. So, but knowing all that um, and knowing some of the, the struggles that we had in some departures that happened prior to me taking over the CFO role, the one area I knew we needed help with was the business finance area. So IBM just said to me, Lori, you know, we're happy that you're taking over this role. Please let us know if we can help you supplementing your team or whatever. They, they, you know, there's a big scare, I guess, in Red Hat that, okay, once you start hiring some people from IBM that we're going to become IBM, right? We won't maintain our independence. But I I didn't feel that that worried about that, to be honest with you. Again, it goes back to, I just want the best people on my team to help our whole company succeed. So with that, I accepted their offer. They identified a really strong business finance partner for us that could really help me understand, here are the deliverables that IBM's looking for. Here's why they look for them. Here's what they're asking for when they ask for this. This is typically what the CFO's looking for, whatever. So he has been what I call a gift on our team, my team. And in and of itself have learned so much from this veteran that has 30 something years finance experience. So, again, it just goes back to if you have the right pieces to the puzzle, it all comes together. Again, you're you're sort of at this very interesting the first year as as uh, under with this large investor. Uh, the first year, the first 12 months, the the honeymoon period or the period (laughs) where, you know, you have to sort out all so much. Um, of the different priorities. So I'm curious, what are the numbers that have become top of mind for you and your finance team? What are you What are you looking at and, and trying to keep a close eye on? And of course, we want to talk to you about COVID and the pandemic 
And uh, because uh, I realize now the question I just asked has a lot to do with current circumstances. But maybe just in general, what are the numbers that matter to you? Sure. Well, and it's a really good question, Jack, because even the metrics that matter to Red Hat as a standalone company are different than the metrics that typically IBM as a corporation has focused on and what their investors look for in them, right? Red Hat is a growth company, always has been, always hopefully will be for some time. I mean, the market is not anywhere near penetrated and we feel we're ripely positioned to help on this hybrid cloud journey. So, so much potential ahead for us. And at the same time, IBM is positioned also to take us on that journey. So it's it's a great marriage. Um, but what I will say is, for Red Hat, we are a subscription business. So we kind of measure our results in single single year bookings, multi year bookings, um, and we amortize the revenue for those subscriptions over time. Meaning that there's not a lot of triggers in a particular quarter if things go sideways that you can just poof create revenue, right? Um, we might have a lot more booking sales, but they don't translate to revenue because we're we're recording that revenue over the period of the subscription, which could be one, two, or three or more years. So that was an interest that's been an interesting dialogue continually with IBM because they don't they have a subset of a subscription business, but it's not predominantly their business. So they're used to a lot of um, levers that they have to to generate revenue when they need revenue and, and that kind of thing. So it's just a lot of understanding each other's business and really trying to complement it. Uh, Red Hat has, um, we bill up front for our subscriptions. So cash flow for us has been generally pretty positive. And that's something that, of course, IBM is appreciative of as well because it's important to them. So it's really just the, the different way of looking at our business, even continuing to go forward, you know, Red Hat's made a lot of uh, acquisitions where we we acquire a lot of technologies for the sole purpose of taking that technology, open sourcing it, and putting it into this ecosystem of open source uh, community so that everybody can benefit from the technology that we acquired, right? So what that means is it doesn't translate into revenue. So there's a very small ROI on a lot of our investments, but that technology that we've acquired, we've put in our platforms and it's helped our enterprise um, business grow as well. Very different from IBM, right? If they're going to acquire something, they look at the return on investment. And, you know, so, so we've had a lot of um, figuring out ways of working and, and so far it's going really well, but you, you touched on an incredible important point, right? Which is COVID. And again, we we at Red Hat, we have about 16,000 associates. We were looking initially pre-COVID for calendar year 20 at a plan to hire almost 4,000 associates. We were on this hiring ramp that we have never seen before because now we have this great leverage from IBM and we wanted to take that forward. And so, gosh, starting in January, we, we were wondering how we were ever going to hire as many people as we needed and then all of a sudden come February, March, it's like, whoa, put on the brakes and immediately need to pivot. So that's been that's been hard. Um, but at the same time, we're very fortunate because we had built into our financial model this incredible growth and people yet to be hired. We were able to weather the storm better because our own associate, we, we've been able to protect our jobs. We haven't, we've been fortunate in not having to do furloughs and, and other draconian measures that so many other companies have had to do because we're able to rely on our subscription-based revenue coming in, manage our expenses, um, and, and work that way. Now let's touch on COVID and uh, the business environment and, uh, Curious to hear if there are certain metrics uh, that you're paying close attention to, external measures uh, that you're paying close attention to. Yeah, I mean, there are. I mean, we're watching, I guess, the same indices that so many other companies are. And I know our thinking was, okay, Q2 here, um, quarter Q2 is going to be tough. And then hopefully see Q3 start to come back to life. And then Q4, hopefully this thing behind us. But you know, that was the thinking about a month ago. Now we see it's very, it's very geographical in terms of the impact and it's very, very much industry impacted. And so we're fortunate. 
like a lot of companies in that we play across all industries. There are some industries that are weathering this storm incredibly well, right? And then there's others, the travel, the, the healthcare, um, the hospitality industry that are, are struggling. So we, we've been able to um, make it through at this point where, um, you know, it, unfortunately, it, it's a guessing game at this point to some extent, right? Nobody has ever seen the likes of what we're going through and, and it's a tough balance. Um, and, and really my job is to focus on continuing to help us weather the storm. And, and this is something that, you know, it is a struggle internally too, because while we haven't had to take draconian measures with our associates in terms of pay cuts or furloughs, you know, I could sense our, our associates are still struggling. You know, some are trying to balance how to manage teaching their kids schooling while juggling video calls or other work. Some are used to having two to three monitors and now they're at home, maybe working in their bathroom because it's the only quiet space in their house. And so struggling, how can we help them um, while also meeting the objectives of our commitments to our parent company and the, the financial um, bottom line? And I, I ended, I was really struggling with this. And again, going back to, I, I care and I'm just passionate about the associates, but trying to walk this tightrope of, okay, but we've got to be careful about our spend and everything. But I had a very wise assistant at a previous company who supported me um, in her advice to me at one point was, if you can't figure something out yourself in 20 minutes, then it's time to ask for help. So what I did was I formed a finance task force with some of my um, great thinkers uh, from four different disciplines within my financial organization. You know, one from the FP&A team on the budgeting side who knew what we could afford, one from my technical accounting side to advise, you know, how to account for whatever we decided to do, one from my global transformation office, who is generally the thinker outside the box, and then my chief of staff who could organize and execute anything, right? So I got these four people together and I said, hey, you're some of the best and brightest on my team. Help me figure out along in conjunction with our people team who are great partners with me in this whole COVID environment, how do we help our associates? I feel we need to you know, offer some sort of stipend, but I don't know what we can afford, you know, what what is scalable across the 15,000 global footprint company and just take two weeks, brainstorm, come back to me with something. And, and boy, you know, they didn't disappoint. They threw up, they drew up a three point plan that covered advice on stipend, the concept of offering a quarterly recharge day where the whole company just shuts down for one day, a quarter, you know, nobody sends emails and stuff just to give people a breather because this pandemic is as much a financial strain as it is an emotional, um, mental strain for so many associates. And so anyway, we partnered with our people team and and that's what we were able to do. We made some trade-offs with some spending. and um, But it's just an example of, of what keeps me going because it's a great way as finance leaders that we can have a significant impact on our organization. Great, great insight there. Thank you. Um, we're going to jump to our finance strategic moment question where we ask you to share uh, an experience in your past where your lines of sight in the organization allowed you to see a risk, an opportunity, and respond to it. Does anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, and it was really kind of, I think I just touched on it in this example of managing through COVID, right? I, I could tell that we needed to do something to help our associates. The risk was whatever we did might not align with the financial commitments we made to the company. It also might not help us because, okay, we know what we know now. And even in this quarter, wherever we end up financially wise, that doesn't mean the same thing's going to hold true for the next quarter because we don't know what's around the corner. So um, I, yeah, I, I really think, again, it goes back to how do you collaborate and and, and the focus is what problem are we trying to solve and take all the noise out of the system and don't do things the way you've always done them, right? That doesn't doesn't mean it's the right way, but don't be afraid to try something different. And, and along the way, I think what's also helped in our COVID response, and again, I'm partnering with our head of people at our company because I actually own employee health and safety, um, global real estate and business resilience, right? In addition to all the other functions. And so, so we're working really well together um, to try to drive the initiatives. But what we've done really well is 
try to communicate, and this goes back to my original point of you get so much further adoption and um, relieve anxiety when you can be transparent, even if you go out and say, you know what, I don't know. We don't know the answer. We're not really quite sure the direction we're going to take, but here are some of our thoughts. And we also do a really great job in Red Hat culture is built on this is to solicit feedback. We constantly are holding in global enablement sessions, open-ended questions. Tell us what you're thinking. If we don't know what you're thinking, if we don't know what you're concerned about, we can't help you. CFO Lori Krebs enters the mentoring round when we return. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Say hello. We're back with CFO Lori Krebs, and we're entering the mentoring round. I begin with this question, Lori. If you could, well, and actually you're in that first uh, first year, actually, but we try to ask you to remember that first week, that first uh, time you took on the CFO role, and if there was some piece of advice you could go back and, you know, give yourself. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I think it, I, and again, I touched on this earlier too. I think it's take a deep breath and um, really take the time to understand your environment and the situation and identify what is it that needs to be solved and prioritize that. And then you've got to complement that with now build a really strong team around you and then go tackle it. So that's, that's kind of what I did. And, and I'm not going to lie. Those first two, three months were a complete blur, but here I am talking to you, so I've survived. <laughs> we always like to ask our guests to reflect a little bit on the personal side, if they have a habit or part of a, a routine that they have uh, that uh, they believe has contributed in some way uh, to the professional side of things. So is there a personal habit or part of your daily routine that you believe has helped you on the professional side? Yeah, well, I would say... I I adopt more of the opposite behavior of myself at work, meaning I try or, and and I mean the work itself, right? Again, I'm always passionate about people. So I like to surround myself with family and friends too. But my personal habit is more to, um, you know, try very hard to distress or de-stress and enjoy or do something that I don't have to think hard about or learn from. So I'll be the first to admit, and this is probably counter to a lot of your guests, I don't. I prefer a great beach read over a self-help book because when I read self-help books, sometimes, although I appreciate a lot of the messaging in there, I, I need to work hard to retain it and then apply it. And I thought, well, no, I just need to turn my brain off because that'll help me refresh for when I really need my brain to be in full, full gear tomorrow morning. So I do that. I garden. I love to go to the beach and just kind of relax with my family and friends. That's, that's, that's my world. And now do I have to ask for a beach book here where we ask for your book selection or is there? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know that people will be particularly interested in my beach reads. I will say that I I do have a a book that I always recommend to people and it's not finance specific, but it's the five people you meet in heaven by Mitch album. It's, and I really resonate with that book because when I read it, I thought it goes back to my very first concern when I started my career, which is, gosh, do I want to be stuck behind a desk all day and just crunch numbers? Why am I not a doctor, a nurse, somebody else, you know, really dealing with people? And and what you find in that book is that you can be an average Joe person, just name the profession, but you can always have an impact on people. And, and you don't often realize the impact you have on people, but you really do. And I have two daughters that are grown now and rock stars in their career too. And 
I always want to think, okay, I hope there's somebody out there in their organizations that's helping pull them along, develop them, mentor them, like, like I like to do in my world. So we're up to our final question where we ask you to look forward finally and share with us your priorities as a CFO over the next 12 months. Yeah, I really, I'm really focused on helping our company very much weather this storm that we're in. And, and again, it's not just the storm of, of COVID, but it's the racial injustice actions that we're, we're trying to take, you know, this awareness, trying to listen to learn and think about how we do things differently going forward. And it, it's in one respect, it's almost a blank slate, right? Because nobody has ever worked in our function in, in an environment like we have now. So there really is no rule book. And so we're creating that as we go and we want to make it impactful and, and, you know, bottom line, we have to, of course, abide by our financial goals and commitments, but we can do that in a way that hopefully brings the company to, to the next level and, and keeps us on the trajectory that we want to be on. Lori Krebs, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. I really appreciate you having me on today. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.